There was a man who was convicted five times of driving drunk. When you have that many convictions, it's pretty clear that you don't see a problem with that behavior. This man didn't realize what he was doing was, was dangerous and harmful, so when his friends found him passed out drunk in his truck again, they took action. They got an empty office, and they transformed it to look like a hospital room. They brought in medical equipment, a hospital bed, and hospital decorations. And then, of course, they hauled their friend in and laid him out in that hospital bed. And when this man came to, there was a nurse standing behind the bed, and she looked surprised to see him. She ran out saying, I'm going to get a doctor. Stay here. And then his first friend came in, dressed like a doctor, wearing a surgical mask to hide his identity. And he told the man, you were in a drunk driving accident. You've been in a coma for 10 years. I didn't expect to see you again. And then his next friend comes in and, and starts acting like he's checking his responsiveness. Finally, they reveal the plot they show the setup and, and they begin pleading with the man to realize how dangerous, how reckless his actions were. They're begging him to realize how easily he could have hurt himself or someone else. Those 10 years could very well have been gone in his life. I think that's a pretty powerful way to show someone that he has a problem. And this man did have a problem. He needed a wake-up call, didn't he? See, he didn't, he didn't realize what he was doing was dangerous at all, or maybe he just didn't care. I'm not sure if this worked, but I can imagine that if it did, this man would be very, very upset. I can imagine that as, as the fact of the matter, as, as reality set in, he'd probably start to feel pretty helpless. Alcoholism isn't something you can just walk away from. It's a long, hard battle probably would have asked for help. What can I do? How can I beat this thing? How can I stop doing something that has such control over my life? We don't always realize when we're doing something wrong, do we? We don't always realize that there's something wrong with us, but the sad truth is there is something wrong with us. We're sinful. We're born that way as human beings. And we need a wake-up call sometimes. We need to be reminded of this. So today we're going to look at Peter's sermon from Pentecost. Pentecost was the day, 10 days after last week's account, it was the day that Jesus told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for. It was the day that Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to the disciples to enlighten them so that they'd understand the full meaning of what it meant that Jesus came to earth and lived among them and died and rose again. He sent his Holy Spirit to equip them to share that message as well. The world needed a wake-up call. Peter's message really revolves around who Jesus is. And here's the spoiler. Jesus is the Messiah. This is his point. Jesus is the Savior, the one you've been waiting for. That's what these people needed to realize. So let's look at how he, let's look at how he tries to convince them of this. He starts, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, 
which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. So here's the first part of who Jesus is. He's endorsed by God himself. The people had seen the miracles that Jesus was doing. They had seen with their own eyes Jesus healing people or feeding thousands with a little bit of food. Or maybe they had even seen him raising people from the dead. They were witnesses to these things. They knew that power like this can only come from God, and Peter was calling their attention to that. Saying, look, God is showing you that Jesus is this Messiah. That's part of who the Messiah would be. It would come with miracles and signs. But that's not all there is to Jesus. There's more to it. He's not just endorsed by God, but he was raised to life after his death. Peter continues, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So after Jesus was killed, God brought him back to life again. Here's another part of who Jesus is. And maybe at this point, the people standing around are are getting a little bit confused. Where's Peter going with this? I mean, where's he even getting all this? The Messiah, he's supposed to set us free from our oppressors. And and we get that if Jesus is the Messiah, he'd he'd come with the signs and all. That makes sense. but, But Jesus came humbly. And he was killed. And now Peter's saying he's alive again? I don't know about that. Uh, Is that really what the Bible says about the Messiah? Is this what the Messiah is going to be? Well, Peter turns them to the Bible. And he shows them that, yep, that's exactly what the Messiah was going to be. God's been promising and foretelling this for the whole time. So he quotes Psalm 16, which is written by David. I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. This probably would have got them thinking, you know what? This psalm never made sense to me. Here David is saying he's not going to be abandoned to the grave. He's not going to see decay. But David's not around anymore. He did die. He was buried. He must have decayed. That's what happens when you die. And they're exactly right. Peter explains it. Brothers, I tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. So the people were exactly right. David did die, he did decay, but David wasn't talking about himself or at least not just about himself. The only person this psalm can possibly refer to is Jesus. Jesus fits it perfectly because he was not abandoned to the grave. He was only there three days and he didn't decay. God raised him from the dead again. So this is exactly what the Messiah was going to be. Even though that's not what they expected, the Messiah was going to die and he was going to be raised to life again after that. From the beginning, that's what God had been promising would happen. 
But Peter doesn't stop there because Jesus' story doesn't stop there. He goes on, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So again, Jesus' story matches perfectly the prophecy about the Messiah. Jesus rose to heaven and was seated at God's right hand in glory. And that's exactly what David says was going to happen to the Messiah. So let's, let's look back at, at Peter's points here. Let's see who Jesus is. Well, Jesus was endorsed by God by signs and miracles. He was raised to life after he was killed. And he ascended into heaven in glory. Now let's look what the Messiah would be. The Messiah would come with signs and miracles. He would be raised to life after he died. And he would ascend to heaven to God in glory. It matches perfectly. Peter, Peter sums it up well too. He says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Can you imagine what it must have felt like to stand there and hear this? Here David just proved, or Peter just proved beyond a doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised Savior. He's the one you've been waiting for. And you killed him. You know, I bet you can imagine what that feels like. I think maybe you, you know exactly how that feels. Just look at verse 23 again. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. This was no accident. Do you think for a second that the Jewish leaders could kill Jesus? Or the Roman soldiers? There's no chance that these people could kill the Son of God without his permission. This was part of God's plan. God handed him over to die. This was, this was according to God's plan all along. He, he had this envision for Jesus to die. It was, it was his plan to fix our problem of sin. So God willingly handed Jesus over to die, and Jesus willingly died. And why? Because of us, because of you and me. God created us to love him, but we betrayed him. He didn't even ask that much of us. He created us perfect and said, stay perfect. It's what you're designed for. It's best for you. And we turned our back on that and said, no, we don't want that. I, I think I know something better. We thought we knew better than God, and we still do today, don't we? We also often think we're going to go after something that, that's going to make us happy or make us feel good, or this thing is going to give me fulfillment in life, satisfaction. And I don't really care that it's not what God has in mind for me. I think we're with those people when we feel guilty because that, that guilt, the reason Jesus died is, is because of our sin. But it's not just guilt. It's terror. Because 
Remember this. God says to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Jesus was exalted to God's right hand. He's victorious. His enemies are defeated. And you know what? That's us. We're his enemies. Sinful human beings are his enemies. We rebelled against him, and he came back from the dead. We didn't win. And that's a terrifying thought. When, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Are you right there with them? I am. God, I've, I've failed you. I've, I've done so many wrong things. What can I do to make it better? I'll try harder. I'll be better. What do I need to do? Just tell me. Friends, we're all in this same sinking boat together. What shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's the answer. Repent and be baptized. Repent here in the Greek, it's a present tense word that means it's ongoing action. Be repenting, keep repenting, make it your lifestyle. Repenting isn't just feeling bad for what you've done. We've got that part down pretty well when we realize we've gone against God, when we realize he's triumphant against his enemies, when we ask, what are we going to do about this problem? We've got the feeling bad part done. Repenting is more than that. It means turning around. Make a lifestyle of turning away from sin, a lifestyle of turning toward trust in Jesus. A lifestyle of turning away from trying to trust in ourselves or what we can do and turning towards 100% faith in Jesus for his forgiveness. That's what repentance is. And let's just throw ourselves at his feet because we'll find forgiveness there. The other thing Peter mentions is be baptized. And I think that most of us in this room today, if not all of us, have been baptized. So why is this so important? Why is it a thing that Peter mentions here? Baptism is God's way of adopting us into his family. When, when we're baptized, it's, it's a means of grace, which means that's one of the ways that God gives us his love, his saving love. When we're baptized, God turns us from being his enemy into even more than being his ally. He makes us part of his family, his dear children. And he works faith in our hearts, too. And that faith in Jesus that's what allows us to repent. That's, that's what allows us to turn from our rebellious ways. That, that's what allows us to turn from trusting in ourselves or despairing in ourselves when we realize we can't live up to it and just trust in Jesus. So what happens next? You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What's that gift? It's faith. And with faith, the whole picture changes. That, that question, what shall we do? It becomes really completely irrelevant. There's no answer to that question. What shall we do? Nothing. Jesus did it all. It's all him. 
Here's, here's how that picture changes. We go from seeing Jesus as the triumphant Messiah whom we rebelled against and killed to our Savior who loved us so much he couldn't bear to watch us die. To our Savior who willingly, lovingly gave up his life to save us. We go from being terrified of, of this God who is powerful and almighty and glorified and victorious over his enemies to finding great comfort in that because we're part of his family. Jesus isn't victorious over us. He's victorious for us. And that's why David has such peace and joy in his psalm. He says, I can't be shaken because he knows that Jesus loves him and has, has taken away his sin. He knows that his problem of sin has been dealt with. And more than that, he knows that God's not just going to leave him dead. He knows that one day, God will raise him to life too, so that he can live with Jesus forever in heaven. And friends, we have that same hope. We can have that same confidence too. We can't be shaken, because there's nothing in the world that can separate us from the love of God. So I'm going to ask you this question again, but in a little bit different of a light. Friends, what are we going to do? We know that God isn't angry with us. We know that he doesn't hold it, our sins against us. And we know that he's dealt with our sin problems, so we don't, we don't need to live in fear. We don't have to do anything about it ourselves. It's like if that, that alcoholic man in the beginning came to, realized what trouble he was in, and his friend said, don't worry. I've gone through the programs. I've talked to counselors. I've talked to therapists. And I've been cured of your alcoholism. You're fixed. That's impossible, right? But that's what Jesus did for us. He did the impossible for us. He took care of our problem for us so that we don't have to. That's amazing. So let's keep turning from sin. Let's, let's make repentance part of our lives. Let's, let's keep turning from sin and keep turning towards Jesus, just giving ourselves to him because that's where we find hope. Let's let thankfulness rule in our lives. Peter talks about this promise of forgiveness that we have. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all who the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Listen up, we're the ones who are far off. When you read that in the Bible, that's talking about you and me. We're in the Bible, pretty cool, right? That message is for us, just as much as it was for the people back then. And we live in a corrupt generation just like the people back then did too. So what are we going to do with this, this message of salvation? Let's look at what Peter did. He pleaded with them, right? Look around you. The, the world we live in is corrupt, just like it was back then. The world around us has a problem. Thousands of people out there are headed for destruction and they don't even know. The world really does need a wake-up call. People need to hear God's law. They need to hear how they've failed to live up to his standard. Maybe their conscience is already telling them that. When they hear that, though, they're going to be cut to the heart, just like we are. They're going to ask, what shall we do? How do we, how do we fix this? How do we save ourselves? 
And that's why they need us. Because we have that answer. We, we have the only answer that can give them hope. Otherwise, they'll find the wrong solutions, they'll try to make something up, and it's not going to do them any good. So Peter used many words, and he pleaded with them in as, in as many ways as possible. He's, he, it's just that important. He tries to get it across any way he possibly can. And he says, be saved. It's a passive verb. It's, it's, be saved would be a little bit more accurate than save yourselves. Be saved. It's, it's not what Peter's doing. Peter's not saving them. He's not saying, let me save you. He's not saying, let these other believers save you. He's not saying, let the members of Cross of Life save the community of Mississauga. He's saying, be saved by God. It's something God does. It's not about what Peter does. It's not about what we do. It's entirely about what God does. And this is the heart of Peter's message. God raised Jesus to life. It's because of that that we have hope. Not because of anything else. So finally, if we're going to go out with this message, and God's calling us to do that, we need to brace ourselves for results. God doesn't let his word go out and come back empty. That's where we see this message is for all whom the Lord our God will call, and he will call people to believe this message. Just listen to what happened after Peter's sermon. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000. Talk about results, right? That's amazing. Friends, we have that same message. And we go out with that same promise of God that he's going to work through that word that we have to share. It's not on us. God's the one who creates faith, so we have nothing to lose. So, Friends, what are we going to do? Amen.